What's up? It's Andy Grammer with Jag. Hi, this is Carly Rae Jepsen, and you're listening to Jag. Hey, everybody. It's Joe Jonas hanging with Jag. This is Heather Knox with the hottest Jag I've ever seen. Ryan Seacrest with Jag. It's B.O.B. checking in with my homie Jag. So much swag with my homie Jag. It's the Jag Show podcast. Welcome in. I am John Jag. Very few radio stations last 50 years. Very few personalities stay in the same place for decades. After an incredible run at legendary Boston rocker WAAF, the woman known as the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie, has moved to podcasting and she is my guest today. Welcome, Mistress Carrie. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So much to get to today from the show to your brand, the amazing work you've done with troops and first responders. But let's back up for a bit. You've been someone I've respected in this business for a long time. Oh, thank you very much. You're welcome. We finally got to meet in person last fall at our mutual friend Andrew Kaiser's wedding. I sat with you and Mike Shu, your program director, Joe Calgaro. Little did I know you guys are planning a complete relaunch of WAAF, and little did you know the folks at corporate had other ideas. Yeah. You've done a million interviews about this, but if you want to just for our listeners give the short version as to what happened earlier this year with WAAF. Well, now I can tell the story without crying, so that's really good. So progress. Yeah, okay. that is yeah. progress because... Um, WAF was, like you said, a legendary rock station for 50 years, and I was there um, overall for 29, 22 of those years on the air full time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, rock radio in general and just the rock industry has gone up and down, up and down, up and down over the years. It's been in favor. Sure. It's been the most popular format, and then it's gone away, and there wasn't a lot of great new music. and. People Meter changed how they, you know, measured radio ratings. and. Let me stop you there for a second, because, you know, my background is in Top 40. Yours, of course, is, is in rock. And my perspective from the Top 40 perspective was when the PPMs and the meters came in, not to get too radio geeky here, but it seemed like they told the DJs, shut up and play the music and took up a lot of the personality out of radio. Was it the same on the rock side? Yeah, it was to a certain extent. And then, you know, six months later, they would come in and say, well, we need more personality. And we need." <laughs> and the difference between something like Top 40, which is a way mass appeal format, right. and rock radio, and I've said this many times, and I, I don't mean to go after Nielsen or Arbitron or any of the companies that monitor radio ratings, but when you work at a rock station, especially you know a station that's got some teeth like WAF did, sure, the audience, the target audience is men for the most part, although our ratings were about a third women, mm-hmm. badass women, by the way. But if you look at what a lot of those diehard P1, this is my favorite station guys, what they do for a living. We had a lot of first responders. So I'm talking cops, firefighters, EMTs, corrections officers, military personnel, guys that are building cell phone towers and electricians up on ladders and Comcast guys, like these working guys that are out there you know, getting it done and they are passionate about the music, but none of the guys I just mentioned can actually wear a people meter while they're working. Yeah. They can't clip it on their OSHA harness. You're not going to see a law (laughs) enforcement officer with a people meter on his duty belt. Right. And you're not going to see a guy that's working in a maximum security prison going into work with a people meter on. Right. So as much as I know that people meter is you know, something that levels the playing field and measures what people are actually exposed to. It's also supposed to reflect an exact cross-section of the population of the market that it's measuring. Right. And I feel like rock radio as a genre, because of the audience that listens to that type of music, I don't know. I question. I'm not saying I'm a scientist, but I question whether rock audiences are accurately being measured because of the nature of their employment. I never thought of that, and that's such a good point, because I think about here in Detroit, when I was working at a station that was monitored by meters, there were 2 million people in Metro Detroit, and there were about 1,500 meters. So you were taking one-tenth of 1% to represent the whole market. And I hadn't even thought of the fact that there are so many people like a rock radio listener that no chance they're going to have a meter if they're listening. They can't wear them. Their jobs won't let them or just... You know, if you're a construction guy, right, and you're running a forklift or you're wearing any kind of harness and you're up, if you're a roofer, yeah. you're doing anything like that, you're not going to have a people meter on. 
but you are going to have a radio on the job site that's cranked. I've been to these job yeah. sites. I did a thing on the air for years where I would actually go and do a listener's job for the day and broadcast live from the job site. Mm -hmm. So I've seen what these job sites are like. And I just question when you have the type of job that a lot of our listeners did, if it's possible for them to participate equally in the people meter process. Mm -hmm. And if it's not, then we are not accurately measuring the audience size or the passion of the rock radio audience, which the stations are being sold and put out of business more and more all the time. Yeah. And it's as if the audience isn't there. And I know for a fact the audience is there. I can't leave the house and go and get gas, or go to the supermarket, or go get my coffee at Dunks in the morning and not bump into people that want to talk to me about why WAF is gone and how they have no other place to go and listen to the music that they love. So I definitely think money's being left on the table by radio in general. Yeah. And like I said, I'm not an expert. I'm just questioning it because I know my audience. I may not know a lot, but I know my audience. I know the WAF audience and I know this region of the country. And I just don't think that those people are being measured accurately. And I just, I don't know how to fix it either, but I'm just raising the question. If only you had a venue where you could measure them more accurately, like, oh, I don't know, a podcast. Hmm. Yeah. Let's come back to that. Yeah. So WAF rode the people meter roller coaster. We went through the big radio merger with Entercom and CBS. Mm -hmm. We got a general manager finally, ironically enough, that used to be the general manager of the competition that we put out of business in the marketplace, WBCN, years ago. And this general manager really believed in the brand. He understood the audience because... He competed against us and used to say, oh, we, you know, you guys used to find a way to pick my pocket all the time. <laughs> and so he understood that it might not be the easiest format to sell. It might not be the most highbrow. And one of the decisions that had been made years ago is that radio stations used to have a sales department that sold that radio station. Yes. So the salespeople listened to the station. They knew the station. They, they knew the personalities. The culture. Exactly. And when they made the decision to allow the salespeople to sell whatever station was in the building, salespeople are like water. They're going to go for the path of least resistance. Yes. So if you're a salesperson and you can sell advertising on the Red Sox radio network in Boston, <laughs> or you're going to sell a rock radio station, which one do you think is going to be easier? Or with the merger, even, even a top 40 station, which is just, you know, crank it out. Yeah, and, and so I'm not faulting the sales department, but it just made it easier. And if I were a salesperson, I'd be like, hold on, I can put in 10 minutes of effort and sell the Red Sox, or I can put in five hours of effort and sell rock radio. What am I going to do? Of course I'm going to sell the Red Sox. Ironically, neither one is on the air right now. Seriously. And so he believed, this general manager, Mark Hannon, who I still to this day love, he believed that WAF was a brand that could be sold and money could be made. It's not as highbrow as the Red Sox or some of the other formats that we had in the building, but he understood its power and he understood the loyalty of the audience. Mm -hmm. And then our program director, Ron Valeri, who was a pit bull fighting for the station for years and years and years, retired. Legendary program director. He was there for a long time too. Legendary. And the guy, like I said, was a pit bull in the industry and he retired. And I really was waiting to see who they hired as the program director. I was actually asked to apply for the job and I was like, no, because I, I don't, I, I don't want to come off the air. I want to, I was the music director at the time. And so I was really going to judge the future of WAF and where it was going based on the program director that they hired. And they hired a guy named Joe Calgaro out of Milwaukee, who is a rock guy, who has a reputation of rebuilding rock stations and being able to steer them out of the swamp if they were having a hard time and kind of yep. put them back on the right track. And I was like, okay, AF, we're good. We got Joe in here. So then Joe and Mark really hit it off, really worked well together. It was time for me to re-up my contract and all of that kind of stuff. And I said to him, you know, AAF has had some hard years with some upper management that didn't believe in the, the brand. They didn't believe in the station. They didn't understand the audience. And it's been really hard kind of flying that flag in the face of people who, you know, I mean, I was on the chopping block for years with old management that I know that they wanted to fire me. And somebody like Ron Valeri was there kind of 
you know, holding back the water with the dam, you know? And yeah. so I was made the assistant program director and we charted a new course for WAF and we really started to put the wheels back on the wagon. And then at the same time, our sports station, the Red Sox station, was having problems with its legendary morning show. And they had gotten into some advertiser issues. Yeah, that was WEI, the old Dennis and Callahan show. And they tried to push the envelope and they pushed it a little bit too far and, and ran into some trouble. Yeah. And, and there were different incarnations of that morning show. And, and they had brought in different co-hosts, but the trouble continued. And so they made the decision, I think like a year ago, that they were going to let that morning show go. You can't just replace a legacy morning show on the flagship station in your market with just anybody. Right. And our morning show at WAF, the Hillman Morning Show, had been around for, you know, 27, 28 years and had a great following, had fantastic relationships with advertisers. And so they took Greg Hill and his co-host, Danielle, and they moved the other parts of the morning show around and Greg went to WEEI, and everybody at that point was like, oh, my God, AAF is done, Ugh, whatever, you lose your morning show. Yeah. However, on my end of things, they were saying, look, we're already in the stages of rebuilding and relaunching WAF anyway. So now this is just another piece of the puzzle. We're going to rebrand WAF as a 24-7 rock station. Mm-hmm. They had experimented years ago with a talk show in the afternoon. It didn't work. They had put a syndicated talk show on at night from Seattle. Oof. It didn't work. And they were like, you know what? We're going to be live, local, and rocking 24-7, seven days a week. And we're going to do it on a shoestring budget mm. so that our profit margin will be okay because we're losing a massive expenditure of this legacy morning show. Right. And so we're going to be lean and mean. We're going to be super cheap to run. And we're just going to duct tape this thing and we're going to charge towards the horizon. And so that's the radio station we were building. And that's the radio station that was going to launch the first week of March. However, President's Day weekend. Before you get to the next part of that story, and if you don't want to answer this, that's fine. But one thing that I've noticed about rock is as some of the audience gets older and then some of the audience changes over. Was there a change in focus on the music of the station? What was the idea there? Yeah. So the climate in Boston had changed rock radio wise, mm-hmm. there were three different and still are three different stations servicing the classic rock audience. Right. Then there are a couple stations from tertiary markets like up in New Hampshire and in Rhode Island that were very heavily focused on classic rock as well. They did play some new music, but not a lot. And so we decided we are going to skew a little younger. We're going to go a little heavier. We're going to put AF back as being this taste making flame-throwing rock station again. And we knew that we were going to lose some of the guys that just wanted to keep listening to Jimi Hendrix. (laughs) But there were so many other places to listen to Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd in town that that's not why people were coming to us. They were coming to us for the personalities, the lifestyle, the rebelliousness of WAF. And so we were going to tweak the music and kind of allow those classic rock stations to own a lot of that classic rock lane. But we were still going to drive forward with, you know, a lot of this great new rock music. Rock radio had a drought for a while and there wasn't a lot of great new music to play. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of great new music coming back out again. And so we were definitely going to change it up. We were going to put the balls back on the bull, as we were saying. Mm -hmm. And we were just going to be this unapologetic rock station. But that was really cheap to run. So we didn't need to bring in the amount of money that we needed to before because we were just going to be stripped down and mean like we used to be. Yeah. And then President's Day weekend, we found out that a decision had been made at corporate and they sold our FM signal for cash to a Christian broadcasting company. And we came back the Tuesday after President's Day weekend. I did my show from 10 to 3. When I got off the air, I got called into the general manager's office with our afternoon host, Mike Shue, and Joe, our PD, and Mark, our GM, were sitting there as white as a ghost. And they were like, there's no easy way to say this, but they sold the signal. Our last day on the air is Friday, and at midnight, we flipped the switch, and WAF is gone. Wow. And it was like someone literally ripped the heart. It was like that scene in Indiana Jones where they ripped... Guy goes into his chest and he rips out the beating heart and Mm. shows it to him. That's what that moment felt like for me. It was devastating. Or for your younger audience, the Mortal Kombat reference would be just as appropriate. 
Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Yep. So now you're going from this long-term plan of rebuilding the radio station and rebranding the radio station to this short-term plan of a couple of days of how the hell do you say goodbye after 50 years? Yeah, and Mike Shu and I, being the on-air personalities that were still there, that had been on the air both for 20-plus years yeah. ourselves, we really took it seriously. And I, I got to give a lot of credit to anybody that knows me knows I don't kiss corporate ass. But Mark Hannon, our general manager, and Joe Calgaro, our program director, fought really hard at the corporate level to allow us to say goodbye, which anybody that listens to rock radio, you just wake up one day, the station's gone, you never hear from anybody again. And they really wanted WAF to be able to be sent off properly and fought really hard that we could be trusted to do that without getting the company in trouble with the FCC or, you know, whatever. Without walking out with middle fingers in the air kind of thing, yeah. Seriously. I mean, we were going to walk out with the fingers, but, you know, we weren't going to say the words that were going to get the company fined. Like, I myself felt this immense responsibility to be in that studio at midnight to send it off for everyone that had come before me that had Mm. played a part in building this monster that I had been lucky enough to be the caretaker of for 22 years. And so there was nothing that was going to keep me from doing that. And I sure as hell wasn't going to do something that was going to get me ripped out of that studio. And so our bosses knew that they knew Mike and I, you know, we're going to be really careful. And so they, this was Tuesday afternoon. The press release went out Tuesday night at five o'clock. They said, take Wednesday off the air to just, Compose yourselves. Wednesday afternoon, we'll meet. Yeah, just process. Come into the office Wednesday afternoon and let's brainstorm what we're going to do on Thursday and Friday. Uh So that's what we did. We went in Wednesday afternoon and we started talking about all of the people that we wanted to invite back, the old DJs, the old bosses. We started talking about all of the bands we wanted to reach out to. And then the debate of what song was worthy of being the last song played on the air at WAF began because that... That's what you spent the most time on, I'd imagine, right? We knew that that decision was going to get scrutinized by rock fans of multiple generations and industry people and musicians. Yeah. And we really wanted to get that right. And so that was the discussion we started having on Wednesday. Wednesday night, we went out for a couple of drinks and went and saw the Robinson brothers on that brothers of a feather acoustic tour, which was fantastic (laughs) and a great way to kind of reset our brains again. And then Thursday morning we started on the air and started our big two day goodbye. I can't imagine how special that was. And, you know, and it's not just rock stations that just poof, go disappear. I mean, to think of the five radio stations I worked at, I got to say goodbye on two of them yeah. because I was leaving of, of, my, of my own planning. I mean, I can't tell you how many corporate stories of, guess what, um, you're, you're, not, you're not working here tomorrow. You're not on the air today or ever again. Like, I'm envious of you and, thrill, and also thrilled for you that you guys got to do that and that you did it so well. And you can find, if I can find the link, I'll put in the show notes too, the, the final 10 minutes or so on the air. I went and listened to it and you guys just did such a phenomenal job with that. It's a gift that is so huge in my mind that I was given by Mark and Joe Mm -hmm. and Mike Shue as well. But obviously I'm not going to speak for Mike, but I know he feels the same way that uh, I don't know how to repay that gift. If I had been escorted out of the building that day when we found out the signal had been sold, um, I probably would have been, you know, on the internet, you know, riling up the audience to, you know, topple the tower. I mean, (laughs) I would have been blind with rage. Yeah. Because anybody that knows me, you know, I worked in in radio for 29 years. I started at WAF when I was 18 years old, and I never worked at another radio station. I went from an unpaid intern to the assistant program director. Yeah. And it was my soul. I poured every ounce of energy and effort and passion that I had into that radio station for decades And to literally, with a swipe of a pen, have everything that I've ever worked for be gone. And I grew up listening to the radio station. So when I got a job there, it was like the dream. It's like a kid that grows up playing Little League and all of a sudden he's the, you know, the starting pitcher for the Red Sox. It's like I'm living my dream here. And to have that be gone and to not be able to say goodbye to it properly would have been devastating. 
And so we really took it seriously and it was really hard to stay composed. I mean, I cried on and off for two days and for days afterwards, the last 10 minutes that you were just talking about. I mean, I go back and listen, it's gut wrenching. It is the pictures. We had a professional photographer in there and video guys in there to make sure we documented it and captured it. And I'm a mess. I mean, it, I've known people that have died and I wasn't as upset. This was a death for me of a best friend, beloved family member, mentor. Somebody who had a 30-year relationship with. Yeah. Absolutely. So the station goes off the air and now you're sitting there with the prospect of now what? Yeah. How is it that you got the idea for podcasting and and, and that started to germinate and, and take shape? Well, I, I had a, a long form talk podcast when I was on the air at AAF. We called it Mistress Carrie's Side Piece. Yeah. And it was a place for me to go and have the longer conversations that the people meter methodology didn't allow me to have on the radio. Right. And then when we moved studios after the CBS merger, we lost our podcast studio. Mm-hmm. So my podcast got put on hold. But for years, every interview that I did, You know, all of that content was always put up on the radio station's website as a podcast. So I had always been a believer in it, but it was just hard to focus on that when you're rebuilding a radio station, hosting a five-hour radio show, doing all the other things. And when it was announced that AAF was going off the air, my phone luckily started ringing with radio opportunities, which was Mm -hmm. fantastic. Had some great conversations with some people, had some great interviews. And I looked at that as an option, but for the first time in my adult life, I could do anything that I wanted. So obviously, you know, people were telling me, you just need to get into podcasting, Carrie. You just, you need to get into the future. You need to, you know, you had a podcast and it was going to be a focus of 2020. It was getting my side piece podcast back up and running because we had gotten a studio where we could work in there for hours and and I was like, well, it, you know, it, it's interesting to kind of see what I could do on my own, you know? Yeah. And then the coronavirus hit <laughs> and radio stations started furloughing people and laying people off. And yeah. all of those possible job opportunities, those conversations stopped. Yeah. Now, whether or not those conversations restart as the industry, you know, opens back up again, I don't know. And I'll have any and all conversations with anyone that wants to talk to me about an opportunity. But now I'm locked in my house during a virus where I'm used to being an essential employee and would have been one of those people that was camped out in the studio working 18 hours a day like I had for 22 years. Through snowstorms and marathon bombings and everything else. All of it. 9-11, all of it. I was always working. And so I made the difficult decision to invest in myself and in my future, both with my efforts and with my finances. Mm -hmm. And I started a company and I decided to launch my own podcast. I spent the money and had to, you know, beg, borrow and steal to get the equipment and the people to put it together because we were doing it during a pandemic. Sure. I built a beautiful studio in my house, which I see right now, which you see right now. And I started working on logos and artwork. I'm building a website. I'm building an online store. I'm designing a line of merchandise. And I just dove in and said, you know what? If I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. But I have to do it right because the people that listen to me for years expect a certain level of quality. Mm-hmm. They expect it to sound good. They expect there to be access to the artists that they love. And if I'm not going to be able to maintain the level of workmanship that I had at WAF, then I can't compete against myself. You know, at WAF, we took pride in the fact that we did a really good job. Social media, digital, video, audio, all of it. And we worked really hard. And so I have to be able to maintain that level of quality and workmanship. And that's what I'm doing right now. And I think that's a credit to you, Carrie, because, you know, you and I have worked a little bit together on you know, starting the podcast. and Which I really appreciate, by the way. Thank you so much for everything that you've done to help me. It's It's been unbelievable. Well, I've talked to so many people, present company included, that have gotten out of radio and into podcasting or doing other things. And I think there's a little bit of a, uh, I don't know if it's from being from beaten down by corporate or whatever. And I'm, and I'm speaking in general terms about radio people here, but 
I think when radio people all of a sudden don't have a studio to go to every day, they kind of have this moment of now what? And what I think a lot of jocks don't realize is the skill set that you have as an on-air personality translates to so many other things. Being able to think quickly on your feet, being able to market yourself, being able to have a conversation, all those verbal communication skills. And then in some sense, being an entrepreneur, this is something that you've done and that I've done, that starting your own company and being your own boss and not having the answer to corporate. And it's scary and it's terrifying, but once you launch it and you get going, there's a degree of satisfaction there that, at least for me, I didn't know was there until I saw it starting to happen. Yeah, I I think that there's a lot of mentality that comes from very high up at these big broadcasting companies that you're lucky to have the job that you Absolutely. have. Absolutely. There was management that I had, not Mark, not Joe, but there was upper management for a while that like I said, wanted to get rid of me, wanted to mm. clean house, wanted to change the station, wanted to flip the format, change the logo. I mean, these meetings were happening for years because they just didn't believe in the station and and when you've got this loud mouth, take no shit, purple haired Boston bitch. They don't know how to handle that and they don't understand it. And so I know my head was on the chopping block for a while. And there was this mentality that came from above that was, well, you're lucky to have a job. Mm. And what never came back was, but we're lucky to have you. Yes. That never came back. And, and then I did get that. You know, Mark and Joe, this new future that we were planning for WAF, they actually said out loud, we can't do it without you. And I was like, what? It's like they're speaking a foreign language at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Are you actually telling me that, like, you need me? Because it's all part of the negotiation. You know, they don't want you to know that you they need you because then you can demand more money in the negotiation and they don't want to pay you more money. They want to get you just like anybody else. You want to get what you want to buy for the cheapest price possible. I'm not saying that it's, I, I understand the concept of it, but the idea, you know, I talked to so many people in the industry and they were like, Carrie, I don't think you understand your brand and what it means to people that you don't understand the value of your own brand. You don't understand the skill set that you have. And I really didn't. Yeah. And I'm still learning that now. And you know, I'm also trying to retrain the industry as well because there's so much of the music industry that is just so focused on just traditional broadcast radio. Yeah. And they're slowly starting to understand the power of a lot of these new media bunny quotes in the air, you know, <laughs> outlets that are definitely able to help their artists. They might not help the chart position on the radio airplay of their song. But the artists and managers and all of those people and the the promoters for the shows, they understand that there is power in a lot of other forms of media besides just radio. And I was really hoping that someone was going to launch a rock radio station in Boston to replace WAF. And it's it's not going to happen. No. And so, you know, I have people tell me all the time, like, I miss you so much on the radio. I miss spending my day with you. And I miss that, too. And... I'm trying to find ways, you know, my podcast just launched. The first episode is up. I'm in the middle of editing episode number two now. I also started doing a live Facebook video series in the midst of the pandemic that we call Cocktails in the War Room. Let me ask you about that with Cocktails in the War Room, because that was a way that almost sort of bridged from the radio career to the podcasting career to leverage that brand and stay top of mind with your audience, right? Totally happened by accident. And our mutual friend Kaiser was one of the people that kind of talked me into it because he's been super helpful. He's, he's fantastic with computers. And so he's been yeah. helping me as well. And, um, you know, he was like, Carrie, you may want to go online and like go live or something and, you know, just kind of let people know how you're doing. There's a lot, of, I had been tweeting and putting stuff up on Instagram and all of that, but he was like, you know, there's a lot of people that they just want to know how you're doing. Yeah. And so I started going live on Facebook on March 14th. So, you know, the last day on the air was February 21st. And then, you know, I went to Vegas to a convention, lick my wounds, rest, whatever, try to figure out what the hell I was going to do. And then I went live on Facebook and 11,000 people watched. And I was like, Holy what cow. the hell? 
And it was only for like 20 minutes. And I was like, I just kind of want to let you guys know. I grabbed a drink and I sat in a room in my house that I call the war room. And I was like, you guys need a drink because I do. And the virus had already started affecting people's daily lives. And people were like, come back tomorrow. So I started every night at 830 going live on Facebook. And, you know, the the listenership and the viewership on average was somewhere around 4,000 people a day that were either watching live or would watch the video after the fact because I would post the video up on my Facebook page afterwards. Yeah. And it was basically talking about what was going on, talking about the news, talking about what was going on in music because the world was changing. Tom Brady went to Tampa. Yeah. The Boston Marathon got canceled. There's no Red Sox baseball. I mean, just... Just being a selfish Bostonian in my own little bubble, there was a lot going on. But these are all the things you would have talked about in the midday or afternoon on your radio show. A hundred percent. And then when you take the lens back and you start talking about the economic implications of the shutdown. And then, you know, obviously, as you start looking more into the social news stories of the day and the protests and what is happening in the new civil rights movement right now, which is just a continuation of the old civil rights movement. But everything that happened in the wake of George Floyd, you know, everybody was just stuck in their houses. Right. And for the people that were working, you know, I picked 830 because those essential employees for the most part were home decompressing after a really long day. Yeah. So I did 81 nights in a row going live in cocktails in the war room We, in that time, designed artwork for Cocktails in the War Room, designed a T-shirt, and we decided that we were going to try and have some positive change from my war room. And so I sold these T-shirts that were made in in the USA cotton T-shirts that were designed by a local graphic designer that were printed by a local T-shirt printer that, um, you know, all of these local businesses were hurting And I said, I'm going to sell these T-shirts. I had to do it on PayPal because my website's not done yet. Mm -hmm. And we're going to donate all the profits of the sale of these shirts to a veterans organization that was helping to feed veterans that needed food assistance through the coronavirus, whether they were immunocompromised, whether they were elderly. And so there were people that were packing up food boxes that were don't that were giving them to these veterans in the trunk of their cars so that there was no contact and it was all donations. Yeah. And we sold 800 t-shirts, wow. just under 800 t-shirts on PayPal out of my war room and I'm literally when I get done talking to you going to the post office to wait in the line again to mail out the rest of them because we use the post office to ship them mm-hmm. to put more money back into the economy and um I am going to be able to make that donation, write out that check next week. And it's going to be, if I do my math right, because I haven't paid for all the shipping yet, but if I do my math right, it's going to be somewhere around $5,300 that we raised out of my war room selling t-shirts on PayPal. This kind of comes full circle to something we were talking about earlier, Carrie, which is the PPMs did not measure the people listening and, and it did not measure the quantity or the quality, honestly, of your listeners. And now you have all this new media, whether it's seeing how many people are watching the Facebook Live, how many downloads and streams you're getting on the podcast, how many people are buying T-shirts. And what I love about this is as you're reinventing the brand, you are getting this real-time feedback of who is there, who is paying attention, and what an army of people it is. It's really crazy. And I'm not reinventing the wheel here. I'm not doing anything new. These are not fresh ideas. I didn't invent podcasting. I didn't invent (laughs) PayPal. But I'm doing the same stuff that I would have been doing on the air at WAF. I just don't have a radio station to do it on anymore. And so what I did was I made some investments in some software. And so now Cocktails in the War Room went from an every night show as the world is opening back up. Yeah. And I upped the production value. And so now Cocktails in the War Room is every Tuesday night at 8.30. It's live. I can now have in-person guests in my war room, but I also have the ability because I've moved something. Before, Cocktails in the War Room was literally my cell phone on a tripod. That's all it was. Yeah. I made the investment and bought a light and a tripod, (laughs) and that was the extent of the production value of my show. Yeah. And now I've invested in some software that I can put music and graphics, and I can bring in people remotely so I can start to do band interviews and have guests 
but it's still all live and completely interactive because I'm still getting that real-time comment stream from the audience that I can ask questions for them. And then that video gets posted not only on Facebook, but I had a lot of people say, look, I don't have Facebook. Hmm. Can you make those videos accessible in other places? So I started a YouTube channel. And now the cocktails in the war room videos are getting posted after they happen in the war room up on YouTube as well. And, you know, as I start doing band interviews, I can take that audio and then put it up on my podcast for the people that want to listen to it while they're driving and they can't watch the YouTube videos. And so it's just giving me away. I'm doing all of this by myself in my house. It's I've become, you know, I went from a radio programmer and a DJ to an IT specialist, an engineer, a lighting director, a, a video person, a camera person, a television producer, an audio editor. I don't know what the hell I'm doing over here, but I'm figuring it out. It's been amazing to watch from afar. And as I was starting to say earlier, just, you know, the fact that in working with you, seeing how much time and effort and thought you're putting into everything and wanting to get it right, to live up to that brand that you've developed over the years as Mistress Carrie and making sure that everything is done right, as opposed to just throwing a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. I, I, I really am impressed by that when working with you. Thank you. I do want to mention this because, you know, you've talked about raising money for food for some veterans that might be food insecure. For those who aren't familiar with you, you've done a lot of stuff with the troops over the years. I know you've traveled overseas. Can you talk about just some of the stuff you've done uh, in that regard? Because I think it's worth mentioning here today, too. Well, I was I was raised in a family of first responders. My dad was a firefighter. My mom was a nurse. My grandfather fought in the Korean War and in World War II. My great-grandfather fought in... Uh, World War One. Wow. Um, my uncle, my dad's best friend growing up, uh, he was a Purple Heart recipient from Vietnam. And he is really the first person that made me kind of understand the repercussions from traumatic service. Mm. You know, my grandfather never really spoke too much about his service. And now that I've done some research, my grandfather was, uh, he was ironically a radio operator uh, in World War II. He's the Morse code guy. It's in your genes. Yeah, and served for almost two years in the South Pacific and, you know, some crazy places during World War II. And so I was always raised with the idea that everyone is responsible to contribute in some way, shape, or form. I was also um, born with a birth defect that affects the nerves in my foot. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't allow me to qualify for military service. So I'm not saying I would have enlisted, but it was just, I always knew it wasn't an option for me. Yeah, And so I always took my position and my audience and that microphone that I was given and realized that there was responsibility there as well, that it was my job to try and contribute. That was, of course, galvanized on 9-11 as I'm sitting yeah. on the air in the studio, realizing I didn't know exactly where our guys were getting sent. And by guys, I mean men and women sure. service members. I knew our guys were getting sent somewhere. I just didn't know where. And I knew that now my generation that really hadn't known large scale war was going to learn what it was like fairly quickly. And that it was our job to not get into the political debate about whether they should be going and and what they should be doing. And just to say, you know what? These guys volunteered during various administrations from both sides of the aisle yeah. And it is our job to just tell them, you know what, we support you. And if you don't like the missions that they're being sent on and the wars that they're being asked to fight in, then it's your job to go and vote and vote the people out that are sending them. But they have signed a blank check yeah. in service. And it is our job to make sure that when it gets cashed, it gets cashed correctly. But supporting our military should not be a partisan debate. Agreed. And so... It was also, we went, you know, talking about the people that listen to rock radio. There's so many people in uniform that love rock music. And so those guys were the ones that were serving. Yeah. And so I started getting mail from Iraq and Afghanistan. Oh, wow. Then I started seeing things on the news that the soldiers weren't being given proper training. They didn't have body armor. They were in SUV or Humvees that didn't have armor plating. And so I started hearing all of the negative things, but yet the military was buying advertising and recruiting on my show. Hmm. So I started going to the military going, okay, if these guys are untrained, bloodthirsty, baby killers with no body armor, 
Why are you using me to recruit new people to feed into this meat grinder? Like, what's the truth? What's really going on? Hmm. And so I started asking those questions and I started writing letters. We mobilized a care package drive and sent over 2000 care packages to service members that had been deployed from New England. And then the conversation started about, well, maybe I could go over there and see for myself what was going on. Wow. I tried to go through the normal channels like the USO and other things. Yeah. And there was even a discussion quietly that some guys from Massachusetts were going to smuggle me on a plane and just fly me into Baghdad and not tell anybody. Oh, my God. Obviously, <laughs> all of the, yeah, trust me, we had the conversations and we realized it was just a bad idea. For a number of reasons. Because this was back in 2004, 2005, when things were really hot there. Yeah. And so then someone said, I had a lieutenant colonel friend at CENTCOM that said, well, technically you are a journalist, you work in the media, so you technically qualify for the embedded reporter program. Oh, wow. So why don't you fill out the packet, the application? I wouldn't write Mistress Carrie. I would write your real name. I wouldn't yeah. write WAF. I would write the parent company. Yeah. But apply to be an embedded reporter. Now, these are the same credentials that you see Christian Amanpour wearing on CNN in mm-hmm. the middle of a firefight. Like, these are embedded reporter credentials. And I started the process in... I think late 2004 and it took, you know, more than 18 months, but it got approved. Hmm. And then it was a matter of how are we going to pull it off? Is the company going to let me go? How are we going to pay for it? How are we going to do the technical side of everything? So my first trip overseas was in September of 2006. I was embedded as the first non-news journalist embedded in a war zone. As far as I know, with troops from Massachusetts in Iraq to commemorate the five-year anniversary of 9-11. I was there for that block of time. And then I went back. Um, as soon as I went to Iraq, everybody said, why didn't you go to Afghanistan? I served in Afghanistan. Nobody ever came to see us. And oh, So then on the 10-year anniversary of 9-11, I got embedded again with uh, troops from Massachusetts in Afghanistan. And so I've been overseas twice. I actually, in 2017, had a third trip planned where I was actually going to be embedded with special forces troops. Oh, wow. Yeah, it I, it never happened. It got canceled four days before I was supposed to get on the plane. It was going to be a super quiet thing. I found out after the fact that the unit that was going to take me, because I didn't know any of this, they said, would you come wherever we are, even if we don't tell you where we are? Well, yeah, special forces. Yeah, okay. And I said, yes. And so we did the whole thing. I went through the background check. I did I did all of it. We got the insurance. We got the equipment. This was going to be way more under the radar, way more stripped down, you know, sleeping in a sleeping bag, like doing the whole thing. And then it got canceled four days before I was supposed to leave. But then I found out after they came home that they were in Syria. Oh, wow. And so that's where I was headed. Um, but like I said, somebody, I believe at the Pentagon, got a little bit of cold feet because some things were heating up there and um, it never happened, but there was a third trip. And, um, you know, I would go back tomorrow. I, anywhere that our uniformed troops are, or even if our, there are troops and they're not in uniforms because some of those guys don't wear uniforms. Yeah. I would go, you know, I feel, I felt safer in a convoy with those guys in Afghanistan or Iraq than I do half the time when I'm home. So I would go anywhere with them. What was it like? Were you doing the show from over there? Were you just yeah. getting full? Okay. So what was it like being with those guys? And were you, where were you eating? Were you, you know, sleeping? All that kind of stuff. When you're an embedded journalist, you become part of the unit. They accept you as part of the unit. They accept your responsibility. It's not exactly what it was like for me, but to give you an idea, if you go and watch that HBO miniseries, Generation Kill, Mm-hmm. go back and watch it. It's like eight episodes. It's fantastic. It's about the initial push of the Marines into Baghdad in the early stages of the war, written from the perspective of a Rolling Stone reporter that was embedded with them. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, this was not my exact experience. However, it is very reflective of what it was like. The scenes with the reporter and the troops the ball busting, the joking, like all of that. That's exactly what it was like. But I went over with a producer both times. We did audio interviews. We videotaped stuff. I had a satellite phone so I could call the radio station, go live anytime I wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote blogs about my story. And it was incredibly humbling. I learned a lot. Um, I was critical of 
some of the money that I saw being spent and the, the contracting companies that I saw getting rich, mm. you know, but I lived in the barracks with them. I ate in the chow hall. I flew in the aircraft. I, you know, drove in the up armored vehicles in the convoys. I mean, I left the wire pretty much every day in Iraq and Afghanistan in Iraq. I was embedded with different units about every four days. Mm-hmm. So I was with the infantry for a while I flew missions with uh, medevacs. When I was in Afghanistan, I was embedded with the same guys for two and a half weeks. Okay. And they were infantry soldiers that were rangers, snipers, and they were part of the quick reaction force that was based out of Camp Phoenix in Kabul. And so with those guys, you know, I still have friends from Iraq, but I was only, you know, I was only with those guys for like four days at a time. Yeah. The guys I was with in Afghanistan, I was with for two and a half weeks. And they were all local guys, the guys that used to listen to my show. Hmm. And they are some of my best friends to this day. And, you know, with some of the things that I've gone through personally, not just losing my radio station, but some other things like, you know, going through an incredibly painful divorce, those guys were the ones that held me together. And I've become part of their family and they've become part of mine. And those relationships, I understand the concept when they talk about like the band of brothers, that brotherhood. Yeah. That once you've served together or deployed together that you don't have to see those people for 20 years. Doesn't matter. And then you see them and it's like you saw them yesterday. And I, I, but I'm very quick to say I was not a uniform member of the military. I did not serve. My experience came in bite-sized pieces, but I understand more than the average civilian. Sure. And, you know, they all think I'm nuts. Because there was no bigger target in Iraq in 2006 than a female American journalist. Oh, sure. That was unarmed with bright purple hair in the (laughs) middle of Iraq. And so there was a definite trust level on my part where I literally put my life in their hands. And at the same time, I put a massive bullseye on their back. Oh, yeah. Because I was now creating a bigger target on them. Yeah. And taking up a seat in a truck an unarmed seat, you know, so they were one gun short whenever I was on the road with them. And it just, that respect, it it really opened my eyes to a lot of the challenges. It opened my eyes to a lot of the amazing good things that our soldiers were doing that we didn't know they were doing. And when I came home, I could speak more intelligently about the war in real time because I had just been there. Yeah, And it also enabled me to go out and advocate on their behalf, to be able to talk about the challenges and the things that our troops needed and the struggles of what they were going through when they reintegrated back home and when they got out of the military and came home and tried to go back to just, quote unquote, a regular life. And so the agreement that I made with those guys was that you have my back here, meaning overseas. Yeah. I will have your back when you get home. That is my responsibility and how I am going to repay that. And so I have been, you know, spending, I'm a tireless advocate for our veteran community and our military and in turn, our first responder community, because so many of our first responders are veterans. Yeah. And you could see it on a day like the marathon bombing when all of those police officers and firefighters and EMTs that were down there that were veterans who understood this is an IED attack. This is what's going to happen. And they instantly went back to what they learned during their service and during their deployments and were better trained to handle the bombing because of what they had experienced and been trained to do in their military service. And we are all safer and better for that training. And so, you know, that's how I spend my time. And it seems weird and fish out of water to have this purple haired rock DJ hanging around with all of these guys with the high and tight haircuts and the uniforms, but they know that I have their best interests and that I have their back. And that credibility, you know, I've earned that from them and they have earned my loyalty right back. So, you know, uh, they know that I'm here. My phone is rung at three o'clock in the morning from somebody that just needed needed to talk, Yeah, you know, and it's, I'm here guys, you know, I love you. I'm here. I support you. I know you're not perfect, but I'm here to, you know, fight on your behalf when you're home. And I think the military 
became a very hot political football. Yeah. When you start debating the wars and the conflicts we're asking these guys to take part in. And um, we've said it before. You may agree or disagree with what they're being asked to do. But even if you disagree, it doesn't mean that you can't support them and the, and the risk they're taking and putting their lives in the line for their country. Yeah, there was a lot of debate during like the Bush presidency about these wars. But a lot of those people joined during the Clinton administration. They enlisted that like they literally are just saying, I don't know if you're going to need me. But I'm signing up and I'm here if you need me. And then it's up to that administration and our elected officials to decide when they get used. So if you don't like what they're getting used for, then go and vote. Don't scream at the guy in the uniform. That's not his decision. It's not his decision. Right. You know, and and those relationships and those experiences completely changed how I look at the world. I mean, within 24 hours of coming back from Afghanistan. I was in a conference room having a debate over what shade of red should be used in the T-shirt logo for a WAF T-shirt. <laughs> and I was like, you guys realize that this doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things, right? <laughs> I mean, it just it just opened my eyes to really show me what's important and where you can really make a change. And, you know, those experiences have shaped everything I've done moving forward. And, and taking that responsibility into this new part of my life with the podcast and, you know, my new company and all the things that I'm doing moving forward, you know, part of what I see as my future is being able to host more of these events, being able to shine a brighter light on a lot of these organizations and, you know, being able to be more involved because I, you know, I'm in control of my own schedule for the first time in my life. Well, now that you've brought it back around to podcasting, as we start to wrap up, Carrie, I know you're early into the process. You've got one published at the, as we're recording this on June 12th. You're editing the second one, as you said. What lessons have you learned, good and bad, so far early in the podcasting process? Um, you know, the I, I think the initial being the only person here and when you have a technical issue with five minutes before you're supposed to record, like that'll scare the crap out of you. Yeah. When you're trying to figure out why things aren't working. And um, I'm also struggling with recording things too far in advance, especially in a, in a time where literally the news is changing and you're trying to have conversations oh, with yeah. people about current events that there really is a danger of recording things too early and having too much of a gap between when you record them and publish them because they can be dated incredibly quickly. And I'm really starting to learn that I, you know, I had committed to doing an episode a week. My episodes come out every Wednesday. And what I'm learning is that might not be enough. Hmm. That there's a lot of things that, you know, the po my podcast mission statement is if you live the rock lifestyle, there is a place for you in my podcast okay? because the music is the fiber that weaves us all together mm -hmm. and it's the shared experience, but it's the whole lifestyle. So I want to keep you in touch with the bands that you love, that you learn to love because maybe I introduced them to you on my radio show 15 years ago. I still want to be a place that you can go to learn about new bands that you may not have heard of before, but I want to be that place that also is talking about all of the things that fit. So, you know, I'm a skydiver. And if you are into skydiving, there's a place for you. I ride a motorcycle. If you do too, there's a place for you. You know, you might love rock music, but you might love golf. I think golf is stupid. But if you love golf, <laughs> I respect the fact that you love golf and there's a place for you. And, you know, the whole lifestyle. So I'm talking about the awesome booze that's coming out in this renaissance of amazing craft alcohol and beers right now. My hometown of Malta just started, just opened a, a brewery I saw. So there you go. Exactly. There's great food, awesome lifestyle stuff. I'm talking about, you know, tattoos and cool clothes. I have interviews scheduled with the companies that actually produce the instruments that your favorite bands play. Oh, wow. That's cool. To talk about the science behind why this cymbal sounds this way and why this drum and this wood makes that drum sound on that record that you love sound that way. And to talk to the roadies, because I was a roadie before I was on the radio, those guys have got the, all the dirt. They've got all, oh, they the, know stories. all the stories. Yeah. And yeah. so to be able to talk about that stuff and 
the technology behind the live concerts that you love and how they do those explosions and the technology behind the shows. Like if you love rock music, you are going to find stuff in my podcast that interests you. And it might even be stuff you didn't even know about, but you'll listen to the episode and go, well, that's kind of cool. But then the podcast is also going to have these conversations about our military stories. I have an interview coming up with a soldier that is being portrayed in a new movie that's coming out about a battle he fought in in Afghanistan. Oh, wow. And to be able to hear those stories and to be able to eventually bring the guys into my studio that I was embedded with to hear their side of the story about what it was like having me embedded with them. and Oh, awesome. I love that idea. So there's a lot of stories to be told and they all fit under the common love of this music that shapes our lives and is the soundtrack to everything that we do. And it really does give me the freedom to have these conversations and to decide, you know what, if someone is a fan of mine, then they're going to think this is interesting. Yeah. Whether or not the radio station that I used to work for thought it was worthy of talking about it on the air or thought it was worthy of making videos about it. And, you know, it just, I want to really be able to open up and talk about all of the things that I love because I love a lot of the things that our audience loves too, or my audience. I still say our, like I'm talking about the radio station. It's a hard habit to get out of. Yeah, it is. But I think you don't have anybody you have to answer to at corporate anymore. You you have the total 100% creative and freedom control over what you want to do for this brand. And, I th- and I'm loving seeing the passion in talking to you about this, about the sky being the limit for you and all the different things you can do. And I'm, I'm so excited for you. It's exciting. And at the same time, it's really scary because when you're the one making all the decisions, when you fail, it's your fault too. Yeah. Fair enough. And so there's, you know, there's that fear as well that, you know, it's all on your shoulders, good and bad. But the audience has been there through thick and thin with me. And they are showing me through the response very early on with the podcast that they're still there and that they want to support the things that I'm supporting and passionate about. And uh, we're in this together. We're a mob. We're a gang. We're a we're a tribe. We're a cult. You can call us whatever you want, but whether you hang out with us in the war room every Tuesday night on Facebook or you listen to the podcast or, you know, the events that I'm going to start putting together once we're all allowed to go outside again and the shows and, you know, it's just it's it's going to be really, really exciting. I'm, I'm super happy about how things have gone so far, but you know, I've had the little glitches here and there, but so far it's been OK. Awesome. So it is the Mistress Carrie podcast. And where can people find you on social, Carrie? Uh, Facebook and Instagram at Mistress Carrie WAF. I'm keeping the call letters on the end of the handle for posterity's sake for now. <laughs> um, you can find me on uh, Twitter at Mistress Carrie and uh, Mistress Carrie on YouTube as well. So um, I'm out there. I'm everywhere. I even got TikTok. I haven't made a video yet, but I got a TikTok account. I just I've been debating how stupid I want to make myself look on the Internet. All right, you've caved on that before I have. So, But I at least have the account. There you go. And do you want to mention any uh, organizations you work with for veterans? Do you want to give any of them a plug, any specific groups? or There's so many. Um, you know, Massachusetts, for you know, as blue of a state as people perceive us to be, uh, it's all the, also the birthplace of America and yep. the birthplace of the United States military. So we have a very long history of supporting the military. So we have a bunch of fantastic organizations that have come out of here. I'm talking about the home base program, which is on the leading edge of post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury research, which is a partnership between Mass General Hospital and the Boston Red Sox. I ran the marathon for them last year. Mm-hmm. Homes for our troops that has built hundreds of homes that have been personally customized for challenges and uh, disabilities of our veterans around the country is from Massachusetts. Um, There are just so many. There are a ton of wounded vet runs, motorcycle runs that happen around the country. The wounded vet run started with the Boston wounded vet run here in Boston. And my buddy Andy, who has a book coming, he's a Marine veteran, who has a book coming out called The Rifle about all of these World War II veterans that he's been meeting and having autographed this rifle. Wow. And his story is amazing. And I'm going to have him on the podcast because his book is supposed to be launching later on this year. So there's just, there's a lot of great work being done here. And um, 
you know, it just, they're all linked on my Facebook page. You don't have to go far with the hashtag support the troops before you start finding my tweets and finding the things and, you know, the different organizations. I do a lot of work with the National Guard um, because I was embedded with a lot of those guys overseas. And, yep. you know, I'm just honored and, uh, you know, humbled that they have kind of taken me into to their family and their causes and have allowed me to kind of advocate on their behalf. It's It's been incredibly re- rewarding for me. Excellent. Mistress Carrie, it's really been fun getting to know you over these last few months, and I'm so thrilled for you and the podcast and all the things that are on the horizon for you. Thank you. I'm sorry I talked so long. I knew you would. It's part of your charm. (laughs) Really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Take care. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the JAG Show podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe in Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes are published every Tuesday and Friday morning. For help with your podcast, find JAG on social media at JAG in Detroit or on the web at jagindetroit.com.